Ladies and gentlemen, it's Proclamation News and Gavins. With my academic integrity is Arts and Humanities. We're moving on from Mother, Mother Mary. We're now on to the section of Chapter 3, Elizabeth I, Gemma Allen and Neil Younger. It's Introduction. In this chapter, I will examine the reputation of Elizabeth I, Queen of England and Ireland, from a victory of perspective so that we can consider what history is and what historians do. The first part of this chapter looks at Elizabeth's reputation during her own lifetime and how different people sought to mould it. In the process you'll be introduced to the various types of written and visual evidence created at the time. In the second part of the chapter we'll look at historians views of Elizabeth's reputation and how and why they have differed over time. For example, do historians view Elizabeth as a successful monarch? How have they judged her actions in important matters such as attempt attack on Spanish Almeida in 1588 and her refusal to marry? So looking at her reputation... Um, so we're on page 112, chapter 3, Elizabeth I. To Elizabeth as Queen. Born in 1533, Elizabeth was the second child of King Henry XII. Her mother, Anne Boleyn, was executed after being facing charges of adultery, incest and treason. When Elizabeth was only two years old, when Henry XII died in 1547, he was succeeded on the throne firstly by his son Edward VII. Reigned in 1547 to 53, and then by his elder daughter Mary I. Reigned in 1553 to 58. As here to the throne, Elizabeth led a troubled existence during the reign of her half-sister Mary. Please bear in mind I'm not good at Roman animals, so you will have to check the book. Being briefly imprisoned in the Tower of London in 1554 when she was 20. It was only after Mary's death that, that Elizabeth became Queen of England in November 1558. You can find a chart following a relationship of these monarchs in the figure 11 later in this chapter. Elizabeth, Elizabeth has faced many challenges as a monarch. In the years preceding her reign, England had experienced religious turmoil with her father, Henry XII, ending the authority of the Roman Catholic Pope over the English Church in the early 1950s and beginning to introduce Protestant worship under Edward VII's rule as much more thorough reform of worship and it implemented creating a generally Protestant church in England but under Mary I England returned to Catholicism Elizabeth always appeared to have been a firm Protestant and when she became queen she re- she restored Protestantism despite this 
Yet ongoing religious tension in England as Queen Elizabeth faced Catholic plots to assassinate her. And in 1570, the Pope issued a papal bull declaring the subject need not obey her. You were introduced to some of the difference between the Roman Catholic and the Protestant forms of the Christianity in the previous chapter on Mary, the mother of Jesus. As a female ruler, another major challenge for Elizabeth was her gender. 16th century England, where a patriarchal society, where it was respected that fathers and husbands should rule within their own households and male ruler would rule their country. Many people living during that time believed that women were incapable of ruling effectively. In 1558, the year Elizabeth came to the throne, the Scottish Protestant clergyman John Knox published the first blast of the triumphant against the monstrous regiment of women. In it, he argued the female war was against biblical principles and therefore a monstrous thing. God, his, by his sentence, has dejected, deprived all women from the empire and dominion above man. Knox, 1588, page 13. Books and sermons of the time also insisted that women should be silent and abandoned to their husband and fathers. However, it was not only Elizabeth's um, suitableness or as a woman to rule that was challenged. As you will learn later in this chapter, her gender, her gender also created other problems for her as a ruler, a potential marriage. As of later issue of who succeed her as a monarch, caused repeated political upheaval throughout her reign. Creating the royal image. As a result, the challenges to her were Elizabeth and the advisors were confronted with an image problem. How should she represent herself to her people as a monarch? And more personally, as a female monarch, how should she seek to construct her reputation? The need to create a royal image was something that originated from Elizabeth I. Its male monarchs before her had also sought to ensure a royal positive royal image. The historian Kevin Sharp is argued that the need to craft the royal reputation become particularly important under Elizabeth's father, Henry XII, as he unleashed religious change upon the country. Henry XII sought to develop a royal image that would ensure that his subjects were obedience. He used page, um, portraits, pa- uh, pageants and authorised texts to gain his people's adoration. Sharp, 2009, for example. Cons- consider this figure too a famous portrait of Henry by Hans Holbein. The most notable aspects of the image are Henry's masculine strength and particularly of his codpiece highlighting his f- uh, fervidity. With his image, Henry sought to represent his authority and power over his people. A bait to the limited audience that would have seen the picture. Elizabeth, however, could imitate the presentation strategy. She could not present herself as physically strong, especially as this was a time when female sexuality was feared as uncontrollable and potentially dangerous. Elizabeth's half-sister Mary had struggled with presenting herself as a female monarch for Mary's coronation 
there was an decision over how the queen should be dressed. Kings had traditionally dressed for their coronations in purple, velvet trimmed in with ermine. But Mary, I was instead presented in a traditional manner for a queen consort, the wife of the male monarch. All in the white with her hair, loose. Richards, 1997. The status as a ruler was downplayed, even for her own coronation, creating a royal image for Elizabeth as an unmarried female monarch was therefore still difficult. Elizabeth herself admitted the importance she placed in showing her own reputation in 1587, when she remarked, We princes, I tell you, are set on stage in the sight, and the view of all the world duly observed. The eyes of many behold our actions. A spot is soon spied on our garments, a blemish quickly noted in our doings. Primary sources. If we want to find out about Elizabeth's reputation was created or constructed, we should turn to complementary evidence. That is the heart of the historians do. To find out about the past, they look for evidence, the traces of the past that have been left behind. To do this, they use primary sources, by which we mean evidence produced in the period being studied. So, to think about the formation of Elizabeth's uh, contemporary reputation, there are all sorts of primary sources for our own time that we could use, including portraits, speeches, letters and literature. One of the most important elements history is learning, how to read or interpret these primary sources. This involves understanding them in their own terms, thinking about why they, why they were produced, for whom, and the context in which they were created. Therefore, a key skill you develop as a his history t student is the ability to read, interpret and contextualise historical evidence. Here are some of the questions that historians might keep in mind when confronted with a new primary source. What kind of document is it? What kind of, what is the historical context? How would it help us study in a particular period of history? Of course, these questions are starting point and when you are examining a single document, you won't necessarily be able to answer all of them. In the following section, we will look at the types of primary sources to help us understand Elizabeth's contemporary reputation, her speeches and her portraits. The speeches. Let's start by looking at Elizabeth's speeches. First, we might ask what she, her speeches can tell us about the creation of her reputation. One answer is that she was killed or orator, or, orator public speaker who controlled the content of her own speeches and was highly educated for a woman by the standards of her time, meaning she could deliver a rousing speeches off the cuff. In, 19, in 1597, without a moment's preparation, she gave a devastating speech in Latin to a Polish ambassador, who had foolishly dared to testify her, her for supposedly disrupting Polish shipping trade with Spain, Green 2000. Therefore, we can use Elizabeth's speeches to think about how she wanted to create her own reputation, in, in other words, her self-representation. However, speeches are also problematic as primary sources for historians, as they are often only copied down from memory by those who had heard them. In the case of Elizabeth's speeches to her par uh, parliaments, these transcripts were often checked by the Queen herself and her ministers prior to publication but many other records of her speeches had no such quality control procedures. Marcus 
et al. 2000. You may recognise at least a few lines from Elizabeth's most famous speech. It was given to the troops assembly, uh, assembly by Tilbury in Essex to defend the country against the attack of the Spanish Armada. The fleet of the Spanish ships sent to attack in England in 1588. You look at his event in even more detail later in the chapter. The Tilbury speech was a piece of spin, a public relation exercise, rather than a necessary act to inspire the troops to fight. By the time Elizabeth gave her speech, the Spanish fleet was already known to be damaged and least temporary in retreat. Trim, 2016, page 85. Yet the speech still offers an opportunity to consider how Elizabeth presented herself both to her people and to the foreign observers. As an activity, it should take you about four to five minutes. Reading 3.1, providing the text of Elizabeth's speech at Tilbury, two versions have been provided, the original text and a version that has been rendered into modern English. Read the contemporary version of this speech, as your historians should always try to work out the original primary sources. You might want to use a modern England version to help you, um, help you understand it. As you read this speech, think about the questions. What kind of document is it? There are lots of things you could think about when considering the issue, but here are the focus on whether the this document were written by Elizabeth herself or not. This will help us think about whether this document is an official text. The italics at the beginning of the reading refer to the way the speech was recorded, so pay close attention to them. How does this document help us study the period of history again? There are lots of things you could think about here. Put it in Elizabeth instance. You should focus on how speeches present Elizabeth as a monarch. Does she present herself as feminine or masculine, as a queen or king. Refer to God in our speech. What is important for us to recognise that the text reproduced in the reading 3.1 is not official document. The version of the speech was from a letter written by Dr. Linnell Sharp, who served Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, at Tilbury and supposedly repeated the speech the day after Elizabeth had given it. Therefore, Sharp was a witness of Elizabeth's speech. He suggests that he was instructed to send a copy of the transcript to Elizabeth herself. Command to send it gathered to the Queen herself, Marcus et al. 2000. However, the only written copy of the speech that we are known was about including a letter vote around 1623, which was 35 years later. The delay between the speech and the creation of the document is concerning for historian. We can all forget about a lot in 35 years. The good news is that there was other records of this speech, a version displayed beneath a painting of Elizabeth at Tilbury in St. Faith's Church in Gayward, Norfolk. This may have been created just after the defeat in Armada in 1588, but there is evidence to suggest that in in the, actually, it may have not been commissioned until 1605, and as the painting was hung next to the one of the gunpowder plot at that year. Additionally, another version of the speech was printed in a sermon in 1612. All the versions of the speech share a lot of Elizabeth's comments about her gender. So, we can be reasonably confident that Elizabeth made some of the references, although the version used in the reading 3.1 was the most detailed on that theme. The speech also reveals how much of Elizabeth thought of herself and as a kind of a male monarch.
when she refers to the heart and the stomach of the king, Marcus L. et al., 2000, page 326. It was, at the time, in the heart, was thought to be the source of courage and the stomach or the source of the pragmatism and the ability to commit violence when necessary. Although Elizabeth, as a woman, could not lead her troops into battle, she notes that her lieutenant general shall be in my stead. She portrays herself as a warrior prince, prepared to die with her troops. Indeed, we can see that refers to herself as a prince rather than a princess. Masculine, implying that she saw herself as above other weak and feeble women. Marcus et al. 2000, page 326. Elizabeth, like many powerful women throughout history, did not seek to improve the lot of women as a whole, only to safeguard her own, in many ways, vulnerable position. The speech also gives evidence that Elizabeth thought herself to be favoured by God, presenting herself as an instrument of God, was a favourite tactic of hers throughout her reign. In a period which it was believed that God continually intervened in earthly events, this was a good uh, defence against anyone who questioned her as a rule as a female monarch. Analyzing this speech tells a lot about Elizabeth's sort to present herself, but there are also problems about the nature of the source that we as historians need to consider. How might we try and further establish the legitimacy of a self-representation in this document? One way would be to look at other speeches of Elizabeth I, particularly those that were recorded more accurately, such as her parliamentary speeches, and see if there are many similarities of the differences between them. We're looking at the activity on page 120. Chapter 3, Elizabeth I. Readings 3.2 and 3.3 are extracts from the two speeches that Elizabeth gave to her male. Parliament, see figure 3, the first is from 1560 and the second is from 1593, meaning one speech was given relatively. Early in Elizabeth's reign, one, mu- one much later, thus helping to consider herself a representation across her reign, and therefore the readings provide a contemporary primary source of the speech as well as modernised version. As you read the two speeches, think again about how these sources can help us study this period of history. As with the previous, previous activity, focus on how speeches present Elizabeth as a monarch. Does she present herself as a female or male ruler? Refer to God in the speech. Remember the references to Elizabeth's father are to Henry XII. Her claim to the throne comes for the descent from her father. As a discussion, as a Tilbury speech, Elizabeth invades both Parliament's speeches. She is exceptional woman, embodied with special qualities. In the 1593 speech, she goes further again, characterising her as a ruler, that of a prince, rather than a princess. And one of the greatest ever monarchs of England, you might also notice that she emphasises her royal status comes from a king, her father, in the 12th. Elizabeth does mention God in her the 1953 speech, however, in her 1566 speech, she highlights that she is anointed queen. Marcus et al. 2000, page 97, meaning a queen blessed by God and thanks God for the qualities of her character. The similarities, similarities between these speeches and the Tilbury speech suggest Elizabeth repeatedly tried to present herself as an exceptional woman sent by God, taking on the person of the male ruler. The male monarch she most uh, closely connects herself is her father, Henry XII. These references are important as Elizabeth regularly sought no defining rule in the terms of legitimate descent 
former father. Historian Christopher Hay has suggested that in acknowledging her womanhood while emphasising her masculine traits, Elizabeth wanted to create a reputation for herself as a political hermaphrodite. Someone who was politically both male and female.